uh, today. Uh, we are continuing our series uh, on the implications of the resurrection. Uh, and when we talk about the resurrection uh, in the church as Christians, we usually uh, talk about it in a past sense. We try to kind of prove it apologetically that if Jesus rose from the dead, then this whole thing, this whole Christian thing has got to be true. So we talk about, about the resurrection as a past thing. We also talk about the resurrection as a future thing. As a future thing, we say, oh, since Jesus rose from the dead, then we too will raise from the dead, and uh, this will all end, and we have new bodies, that death will reign no more because death didn't reign in the body of Jesus. Both are true. Both, it, both are good and admirable and necessary for the life of the Christian and for the church. Uh, but what's very fre- infrequently talked about is, what are the implications of the resurrection today, in the present, and that's where we've been uh, looking these last several weeks. We know the implications, if you've been in the church, we know the implications of uh, the cross, but what about the resurrection? And uh, so a few weeks ago, we looked at Colossians 3 and looked at that the resurrection gives us life, that the whole moral life of the Christian is really, uh, the, the basis of it is the resurrection. Uh, if you think about the Gospels, if you read any of the Gospels, uh, the disciples look like uh, complete nincompoops. I mean, the idiots of the first degree. But something happens uh, because Jesus from the de- rose from the dead and he gave his Holy Spirit. These people now become totally different in the book of Acts and in the early church. How'd that happen? The resurrection of Jesus. That's how they became totally different. And so we want to apply this resurrection to us. What does it look like? And so we looked at the resurrection in the heart, uh, the resurrection in the mind, and today we talk about resurrection uh, and the body. And uh, so the passage on our consideration is 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, it's in your bulletin, page 8. We'll read verses uh, 9 to 20 and get started. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated uh, by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one end of the, and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. So tonight's sermon is about sex, and uh, that's where we're headed tonight. It's all over the passage, and um, it has a lot to do with our bodies, doesn't it? Uh, So we're going to really kind of look at three things. One is uh, that our bodies uh, were created for glory, that our bodies are corrupted by sin, 
and our bodies are reclaimed by Christ. So we were created for glory, our bodies were created for glory, our bodies are corrupted by sin, and our bodies are reclaimed by Christ. All about the body tonight. So the first one, uh, bodies created for glory. Uh, look at verse 13 at the end of it. End of verse 13, uh, Paul says uh, that our bodies are meant for the Lord. This is a really tough verse for Christians because we're embarrassed about our bodies. We're not always sure that God even likes them very much. Uh, but if we're really going to understand the glory of our bodies, we've got to go to the creation account to see how glorious our bodies were intended to be. So in Genesis, God made us with bodies. Let me say that again. God made us with bodies. Let's all say it. God made us with bodies. And if you look at Genesis 1 to 3, the creation narrative, you'll see that human beings did things with their bodies that were glorious. The first of which is that with their bodies, that they, that, that's how they reproduced. They reproduced through an act with their bodies that brought them immense physical pleasure. Sex. So they used their bodies. It was glorious. They also, God created food for the body that tasted very good. Way better than the best meal you've ever had. Yes, there was the apple there, but if you read the creation narrative carefully, you'll see that God put other things in the garden that created, that, that, that made things that were for their enjoyment. God also created bodies to work and tend the garden. And these bodies that worked and tended the garden brought them, uh, gave them work that was impactful and that was uh, very fulfilling for Adam and Eve. So bodies were not given to Adam and Eve after the fall, but they were a glorious part of life pre-fall. And then if you fast forward, you get to the gospel, you see that Jesus comes on the scene, not as a spirit, but with a body. And then the way he dealt with bodies, think about it, he healed bodies and he raised bodies. He gave food to bodies and he gave drink to bodies. So our bodies matter. Uh, Lauren Winter, uh, a really uh, thoughtful theologian and professor, um, she writes this in her book called Real Sex. And she says, uh, bodies are not simply pieces of furniture to decorate or display. They are not trappings about which we have complicated feelings. They are not objects to be dieted away, made to conform to popular standards, or made to perform unthinkable athletic feats. Think LeBron, especially last night. <laughs> Bodies are who we are and where we live. Let me say it again. Bodies are who we are and where we live. They are not just things God created us with but they are the means of knowing him and abiding with him. Does this sound totally foreign to you? Perhaps it feels so foreign to you because you and I have been told countless lies about the value of our bodies. And many of these lies find their genesis in the church. These lies tell us that our bodies are gross, that they're dirty, and they're just plain unimportant. That comes from the church. Um, one time, 
I was with a mentor of mine uh, years ago. We were at Buffalo Wild Wings, and um, he said, order anything and as much of whatever you want. I'm buying. And then he says this, I, I know it's unhealthy, but who cares? It's all going to burn anyways. And it was awesome. I mean, I, I ate an, an enormous amount of wings and fries and drank a lot of carbonated beverage. Um, is it bad to enjoy those things? No, just don't make a habit of it. But to dismiss the whole, the, to dismiss the unwholesomeness and the amount we ate because our bodies are unimportant or going to burn, that's troubling. So some say the body is unimportant. Some say the body is gross or dirty. Just ask any female who's ever gone to the beach with a youth group. Um, what the church has really tried to do, the intention is noble. The church wants to combat the casual view of sex that our culture perpetuates. So it's got this fervent determination to, pervert, to, to preserve sex. And in so doing, it li- makes some lies of its own. Chiefly, that our bodies don't matter at best or are gross at worst. See, our bodies were created good. But then our desires were corrupted. And that's what makes things so complicated. Bodies can be exploited. They can be destructive. They can be dangerous. And that's what Paul's pointing out in our text to the Corinthians. But a full view of the body in the scriptures tells us that our bodies are good and that they matter. So our bodies are corrupted by sin. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 to 10, you see this long list. And Paul, in his framework of thinking, he still got this Genesis 1 to 3 in his mind. Because when Adam and Eve, when they sin, it ushers in the fall. And the effect of the fall has its way on the body immediately. Think about it. Eve is told that her body is going to experience great pain in childbirth. That's a result of the fall. Adam's manual labor is described as being one of extreme physical toil. That was not the way his work was before the fall. It had an effect on his body. And then the biggest thing happened because of the fall is that our bodies die. And all this is a result of sin. So when Paul starts drilling in here on verses 9 to 10, it has everything to do with our bodies. Let me show you how each of these are about the corruption of our bodies. Look at the first one in verse, verse 9. It says sexually immoral. immoral. Uh, sexually, sexually immoral is uh, it's an all-encompassing uh, Greek word, the word porneia. And the word porneia is about any sexual sin that happens outside of marriage. Any way that you enjoy your uh, sex outside of marriage is the word porneia. We'll talk about that more in a minute. The next one, idolaters. Uh, this needs some explanation because for the, for the, for the, for the church at Corinth, uh, idol, being an idolater was about going to these feasts that were uh, really worship services towards pagan idols. So, uh, and being an idolater is about food, very physical things, something you do with your bodies. The next one, you're an adulterer. Adulterer is about extramarital sex. Then there's homosexuality. Homosexuality is not just a 21st century Western thing. Homosexuality is something that's been a part of the fall ever since. It's a distortion of God's intention, and it's existed ever since the fall. Then you've got thieves and swindlers. Thieves and swindlers is about stealing things with your 
body. Drunkenness is about drinking too much to the point that you're not sober. Something that happens with your body. Greedy, it's about, to, it's about money and materialism. Something that happens with your body. Some things that you see with your bodies that you want. And then revilers. Uh, being a reviler is about attacking uh, our fellow man through the use of our words. Something you do with your body. So you see, all these things, all these things are the improper use of one's body, whether it's with your mouth, with what you eat, with what you drink, whether it's with your sexuality, or whether it's the way in which you distort the physical world. So when, part, when Paul starts this whole list in verses 9 and 10, you see all that, but then he kind of leaves everything to the wayside. All the stuff about uh, drunkenness, all the stuff about being idolater, going to these pagan feasts, all the things about swindling and being a reviler. He kind of leaves those all behind and just leaves those in the list. And then everything from verse 11 on is really about sexuality, which he mentioned in a few different ways in that list. And you would understand if you knew something about Corinth, why he does that. Because in Corinth... Um, it was a very challenging sexual situation for Christians. Uh, these Christians in Corinth are usually first-generation Christians, meaning their parents weren't Christians. This is like many of you. Uh, they don't have the advantage of being formed from their earliest days by the gospel. So there's a lot of unlearning that they're going to have to do. They've got to do this unlearning in an environment where sex is everywhere. Uh, Corinth, uh, there's a temple. Their, their, their biggest religious monument and they were very religious people. The, the biggest one, they were like mega church, was a temple uh, to Aphrodite. Uh, Aphrodite was the sex goddess. And this temple was on the highest mountain. And in that temple, uh, there were a thousand temple prostitutes. And all during the day, you could go up there and have sex. And that was part of your worship to Aphrodite. And at night, those thousand temple prostitutes would come down into the city and you could have sex with them. This was their environment. This was their context. And to make matters worse, that Corinth was a place where you could make money. So people came from rural areas all, all across the empire to come and make a life for themselves. So it was full of 20-somethings. Sounds like Lexington, doesn't it? They stay in Lexington for economic opportunity. So you've got people who are at the zenith, the peak of their sexual energy, living in a place with easy access to sex in a church made up of first-generation Christians. So this causes a major predicament in the church. How are they going to deal with this? And there's really two strategies that they took that Paul, and Paul addresses both of them. The first one he addresses in 1 Corinthians 7, which is not in our bulletin that we haven't talked about. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul addresses married people, married folk, and, and these married folk are abstaining completely from sex because they see uh, sex as a distraction from what's really important, the spiritual and Paul says that that's a really, really bad idea. He says it's good that they're wanting to protect the church from the flippant view of sex that they see in their culture, but they've just gone way too far. And so what he has to do is he has to crush the idea that Christianity and prudishness are the same thing. So he crushes that one pathway of dealing with sex in the church. The other pathway he talks about in verse 12. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, it says, All things are lawful for me, twice in parentheses. It's because, that's a quote, uh, there's a person, a, a powerful person, or a group of people in the church, and they're saying, hey, we're going to carry on with our sex ethic because all things are lawful for me. I'm saved. 
I'm right with God. I'm free. I'm not under the law. Anything that my heart tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And Paul says, that's just not true. You can't do whatever you feel like doing. That's why he says in 15 and 16, look what he says. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ, meaning his body, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So do these people who have this everything goes sexual ethic, he kind of goes at two lies that they're believing. Uh, One lie is uh, that there are different degrees of sexual immorality. See, they're thinking the same, in some ways, the same thing you are. See, it'd be easy for you to say, Marsh, I mean, seriously, I'm not really into this prostitution thing. I mean, uh, I've got my problems, but prostitution isn't one of them. Uh, And you're thinking, man, that's for really messed up people. And I understand why you might say that, but prostitution for them was very casual. And it was widespread, and because it was casual and widespread, it was socially acceptable. Nobody thought you were a bad person if you were with a prostitute. Because remember, remember that word porneia that I mentioned earlier, the word translated sexual morality. What that word does is that it lumps all sexual activity outside of marriage together. And what it does is that puts masturbation, pornography, and premarital sex on the same turf as extramarital sex and prostitution for us. See, we see these things on a scale from acceptable to abominable, but the Bible, what the Bible does is it puts them all together. Why does it do that? Well, it's because the Bible's sexual ethic is that sex is reserved for a man and a woman in marriage. Everything outside of that is porneia. There's not a scale. There's not different degrees. That's why he uses the word over and over in our passage. The second lie he's got to come after is that sex is casual. Um, let, me, let me talk about sexual uh, immorality in a little bit different way. Sexual immorality is when what you do, it's when we do something physically that we haven't done personally. Let me say it again. It's when we do something physically in sex that we've not done personally in a relationship. See, sex outside of marriage, what it does is that it's telling the other person that you're committed to them physically, you're willing to be one in body with them, but you're not committed to them personally. You're unwilling to be one with them in relationship. See, because what you do with your body, you're going to have to do with your soul. You're an integrated person. That's why the one flesh metaphor means becoming one flesh in a physical way and in a personal way. See, sex is very powerful. It's very powerful to bring two people together. Sex has a potency, both for pleasure and also for control. Just ask a sex addict. And the reason that it's got this kind of potency is that there's an inevitable uniting effect that happens when two people have sex. No one, this is what one author said, one author said, no one can go to bed with someone and leave their soul parked outside. And it's because afterward, two people very seldom feel the same way toward each other ever again. They may feel love, they may feel hate, they may feel awkwardness, 
but it's always different than it was before. And friends, this happens even if you don't intend for it to happen. And so that's what Paul's got to do here. He's got to say to those people who say, all things are lawful for me. He says, well, let me back up a minute and tell you what's really happening when you join yourself with a prostitute. You're becoming one flesh. Now, if you're like me, uh, this week this was a really heavy passage, and I can just, standing here and watching it, you know, I can tell it's heavy for you too. It's because our sexual past, they, we have so much shame about them. We have a lot of shame about our bodies because our bodies and our sexualities are inextricably linked. So when you've been hurt by other sexuality or, you, or you're hurt now because you've misused your own sexuality, you feel bad in your body. And that's why your body is almost certainly the center of your self-hatred. I don't know anyone who's content with how they look in the mirror because when they look in the mirror, they see the scars that they've endured personally from misused sexuality. But notice Paul's strategy here. He doesn't come to the Corinthians and say, hey, you're a lost cause. You've been way too promiscuous for this Jesus thing. He doesn't come to them and say, hey, Jesus isn't going to have anything to do with you anymore because you're so broken sexually. He just doesn't do that. What he does throughout this whole text, it's almost like I I can't go more than two or three verses with this slipping something in. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says that they've been washed and they've been sanctified and they've been justified in Jesus. And he drills down a little bit. Verse 14, he says they've been raised with Christ. He drills down a little bit, gives them a little bit more hope in verses 18 and 19, and he says that they've been bought with a price. So throughout this whole passage, he's wanting to tell them that your bodies have been reclaimed by Christ. Yes, they've been corrupted horribly, but they've been reclaimed because of Jesus. I couldn't help this week but be reminded of a scene from the Old Testament. Uh, It's from the prophet Hosea. You know anything about Hosea? Let me tell you about him. If you have heard about it, let me remind you. I needed the reminder this week. Uh, God had told Hosea uh, to marry a girl. And the girl that he told him to marry uh, was going to absolutely break his heart. She had a spotty past. Uh, she had a fickle heart. And she was going to spurn him again and again and seek the affection of other men. She's been doing this for quite a while, and then everything comes to a head. Uh, The woman, uh, she finds herself on the bidding block. She's for sale. She's destitute. She's rejected. She doesn't have any options because of the debt that she's, the hole she's dug for herself with the debt she's incurred. She stands on the bidding block. She's naked. She's for sale as a sex slave to the highest bidder. The auction begins, and something really strange happens. She hears a voice that she knows very well, and the voice says five shekels. It's her husband. Ten shekels. Why would he do this? It doesn't make any sense. Fifteen shekels sold. She's been bought by the man who she has spurned. 
He comes to her. She's ready to receive a lashing, a punishment for all the hurt she's caused him. But to her surprise, she finds a man with a smile and a warm embrace. This embrace seems to say, I love you more than you'll ever know. Let's go home. Now, friends, that's your story. It's mine, too. Because we're the ones with the spotty past and the fickle hearts. We are the ones who have found ourselves in the arms of so many other lovers who have stolen all we have. We're the ones who have forsaken the one who really cared about us. And then Jesus proved his love to us. He proved it because he died on the cross and he gave all he had, a whole lot more than 15 shekels. He did all this to win us back and he greets us. And when he greets us, he doesn't smite us. But he says, I love you more than you ever know. Let's go home. Friends, you are bought with a price. Your body's not your own. Glorify God with your body. And to the extent that you hear that voice, I love you more than you ever home, let's go home. To the extent that you hear that voice will be to the extent that you honor Jesus with your sexuality. That's the hard stuff. It's, it's really critical. You really can't move on uh, to getting uh, really practical until you've got that part first. But the big question for you and for me tonight now is, what are you doing with your sexuality? See, the blood of Jesus says that this question is now is inconsequential. The question of how have you sinned in the past doesn't matter because your sin has been paid for. And the lie the devil's going to tell you over and over again that you shouldn't listen to is that your sexual sin is unforgivable. It is not. You have been bought with a price. But in the here and now, what the resurrection does is it gives us power to obey. Because the Christian approach, it's not towards hedonism, it's not towards doing whatever brings you pleasure with your body. That's what they were doing in Corinth. That's what all those people in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. That's what, that was their approach. Neither is it obliteration that, that, the, that your body's desires are of no importance. That's what they were doing in 1 Corinthians 7. But the Christian approach is towards discipline that's guided by love. And it's difficult. There's no doubt it's difficult, but it's worth it. Uh, Jesus in Mark chapter 10 he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So friends, if you leave your sexual immorality, it will be hard. But know that Jesus promises you a hundredfold now. And if that weren't enough, he promises you eternal life in the age to come. So brother and sister, let us all glorify God in our bodies. Let's pray. Father, we want to believe the voice of uh, the real lover of our soul. Who says, I love you more than you'll ever know.
Let's go home. Give us the faith to believe that. In Christ's name, amen.